Hey everybody, Steve Skojak here. Um, we've got a great show lined up for you already. And right before we jump in, though, I just wanted to do a quick reminder that we're doing our fall fundraising campaign. We really need your help. Um, we're trying to raise $30,000. We've raised about 1400 so far, so thank you so much to those of you who have already donated. If you haven't, please consider dropping a little something in there. $5, $10, it adds up. Um, if you could do it, it'd be fantastic. Just go to our homepage and click on the donate button at the top of the webpage. You can also go through the little sidebar widget that shows our campaign goal and the progress that we've made. There's a little progress bar over there, but we'd really appreciate your help. Uh, it's going to make all the difference in the world. So thanks for that. And without further ado, we're going to jump into the show. Hello and welcome to the one Peter five podcast episode six. On today's episode, we have another roundtable with Elliot and Scott, where we talk about the Synod, liberation theology, and generally a lot of the crazy stuff that's going on in the church, and some that's going on outside of it. How bad could it be? Well, it could be as bad as Ebola reaching America. That'll never happen. It's impossible. It can't happen. Our government's got this locked down. I mean, the border's secure. Everything's fine. We're pretty much the next worst thing to a zombie apocalypse. All this and more, coming up next. You're listening to the One Peter Five Podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Rebuilding Catholic Culture, Restoring Catholic Tradition. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Uh, We're going to do a roundtable tonight. My guests, again, are Elliot Bogus and Scott Broadway, uh, two contributors to 1 Peter 5 and some of my favorite conversationalists on the Catholic topics du jour. But before we get into all that, something we've been meaning to do um, and just haven't... (laughs) remember to do it, is to begin our podcast with a prayer. So we're going to do that briefly. Um, I'm going to start with a prayer for guidance, and then I'm going to pass the microphone to Elliot, uh, who has a prayer to the Sacred Heart of Jesus that he would like to pray. So, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, Amen. Let us pray. Direct us, O Lord, we beseech you. Direct all our actions by your holy inspirations, and carry them on by your gracious assistance. That every prayer and work of ours may begin always from you, and by you be happily ended. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our Lady, seat of wisdom, pray for us. Elliot, I'll hand you the mic. Eternal Father, I offer thee the most pure love and the ardent desires of the sacred heart of Jesus in satisfaction for my cold and tepid love. Amen. In the name Amen. of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. 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 Um, we've got a lot to talk about. The Synod's about to get started, the Synod on Marriage and Family in Rome uh, in just four days. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that's just going on. It feels like the news is being bombarded with a lot of things. So I'd like to welcome uh, you guys to the show and just dig in. So, how's it going? Good. Solid. It's been busy, hasn't it? I mean, it's a lot. I feel like, you know, I can't keep up. Like, 
the the amount of stuff that people are sending me that I need to read is piling up, and I'm not getting. Oh to yeah, it all. it's absurd. And um, yeah, I'm just tonight. Like I have, I don't even know how many tabs I have open of stuff that I haven't read. It's funny you should say that, Steve, because <laughs> I uh, I mentioned to Scott that I had a little sort of icebreaker. And so, first, I will ask, what uh, what are we gentlemen drinking tonight? Well, I, are we, Scott? You go first. A Boulevard Deer cocktail, which is a mix of bourbon, sweet vermouth, and Campari, kind of nice and bitter, refreshing. Yeah, ice. I'm assuming there's ice in that. Oh yeah, ice definitely ice. Well, I mean, you guys are in in Florida, so ice is Florida. sort of necessary. We're at the point now where in the evenings it's starting to cool off here a little bit. In fact. Up until up until just a few minutes ago, I was actually drinking some nice Earl Grey tea uh, with local wild rose honey, which was quite nice. Um, but now I've gone back just just cheap bourbon, non Asian tea, huh? <laughs> don't, don't know about that, Scott. Uh, anyway, so I myself am having some Evan Williams. Uh, it was requested by a couple of rascals I know. And now, so the icebreaker is this. You, you mentioned all your open tabs. How many open tabs do you have open? Because I, whoever has the fewest can't drink for five minutes. Oh, come on. Because I actually have a lot less than usual because I start closing things out uh-huh. before I do a podcast so that I have plenty of memory for my recording software. So let's see. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Only ten tabs open right now, plus a couple of other windows besides. Zero. Okay, Zero well. <laughs> cheers to me. What have you got? Oh, you don't even want to know. I mean, literally double digits. I don't know, a couple dozen. Yeah. It's good when you have to open a new browser window just so that you can accommodate the second set of tabs. <laughs> And then you just hope that you don't accidentally close one. <laughs> oh, oh, oh no. that'd, be, yeah. that'd be as bad as Ebola reaching America. That'll never happen. That, it's impossible. It can't happen. Our government's got this locked to- down. I mean, the border's secure. Everything's fine. Right. <laughs> Nobody's leaving the areas of Africa where people are infected. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, while we're on plausibility. So, Cardinal Burke is out there right now and i don't know i mean am i the only one who's getting the sense that he is sort of (laughs) he is aware of his impending demise and he's decided that the gloves are coming off scott what do you think i don't know i'm just waiting for the i'm just waiting for it to be official i guess uh it seems like you know he was demoted last year around this time um now you know, all the all the rumors swirling around. I don't know. I don't want to draw conclusions. He's a really wonderful, wonderful bishop. I wish there were many, many more like him. But I don't know. I don't think he's like. I don't think he's full of himself enough to be waiting to get fired so he can like mouth off. I don't think that's his game. No, I think it's actually the opposite. I think he knows he's going to get fired, and he's mouthing off now before he's basically sent off into, you know, the sunset. I, I mean, we've got the second report this this past week saying that there are additional sources inside confirming that he is being demoted, that he was not consulted, that it's a fait accompli. Whether it's true or not, we also have him with a dateline of yesterday 
uh, out in Catholic World News, and he's just taking Casper head on, Cardinal Casper, and just saying, I mean, it's great. He says, I find it amazing, this is a quote, I find it amazing that the Cardinal, Casper, claims that he speaks for the Pope. The Pope doesn't have laryngitis. Right. I mean, he's not mincing words at this point. No, that was... No, and um, I mean, it's good that he doesn't have laryngitis because if it were true that Casper were just speaking such uh, rank error, I mean, it would be nice uh, if the Pope might just quash that end of the discussion. But I don't know, you know, who am I? No, I don't think that um, Cardinal Burke is really lashing out or anything like that. I really think he's, I just think he's one of the most level-headed figures on the sort of Vatican stage right now. And I think, honestly, I think he feels liberated. You know, yeah. it's sort of it's sort of like getting fired from a job you hate anyway. Yeah, you're like, what am I going to do? I mean, I I mean imagine lose? he'd be he'd just be a cog in what's happening now. I mean, really, he's I don't know. He can become really. Uh, I don't want to say a voice crying in the wilderness, but he's. I don't want to say again, not nothing to lose, but he's saying what needs to be said. Well, it's, and, it's nothing. It's nothing shocking. Yeah, and in particular, if he knows that he's not going to be a part of this synod. He has to get it, what he wants to say in now, sure, or forever hold his peace. I mean, afterwards it might be too late. Yeah, the old "I told you so." But, but anyway. I tell you what, I mean, it it reminds me of uh, Our Lady of Akita, you know, where the I wish I could remember the exact prophecy. I'm going to try to Google it while I'm talking. But uh, the thing where she talks about, you know, the cardinal will be against cardinal, uh, and this I've never in my life, you know, I, we all pay attention to the church news and gossip and stuff way more than probably most people do. I have never in my life seen cardinals publicly and in the media trading barbs like this ever. It's just I haven't seen it. And like you said, Burke is level-headed. You know, Casper's kind of an attention guy, but Burke is level-headed and it's weird to see him saying this and and addressing it directly. Is it just me? Uh I don't think it's just you. I mean, Burke meant a lot he means a lot to a great many catholics um because he has such a close connection to the emeritus pope benedict 16th um who also meant a lot and means a lot for a lot of catholics so i mean you know one thing that i learned long ago after i entered the church it, it took me a few years and it, i had some sort of cognitive dissonance but i realized i had to face the fact the vatican is a little na- nation state and politics are they're ingrained in that reality um i mean you could say politics are an evident family and you just have to sort of take some of these vatican the rumor mill and all that sort of in stride and say okay that's what's happening um but the faith is still the faith and that's why burke is level-headed i think because he really can see beyond the politics and he doesn't get all flustered about it you know i mean uh, if you hear casper speak a couple weeks ago he, he sounds like his ego was wounded you know he's this esteemed german theologian cardinal um but you know i i it doesn't really alarm me i well, just he, think people, he got called out i mean yeah Father he's Pesci out there well and he's out there claiming to speak for the pope and i'm putting forward some pretty outlandish theories and doing things on his own that were supposed to be Secret. I mean, the stuff that happened in the consistory back in February was supposed to be private. Right. And he turned it into a book. Um, yeah. So, I mean, he's definitely taking some heat. And, 
it seems that the silence of the Vatican itself is a sort of a double-edged sword here because they're not correcting the stuff that he's saying, but neither are they affirming it. So he's kind of left hanging out there in the wind. I, I actually found, by the way, the message of Our Lady of Akita that I was thinking of, and what I did not realize is that this message um, was actually on October 13th, 1973. So it's timely. It was on the actual anniversary of the final visions of the miracle of Fatima. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's, it's, it's very dire, but the section in question, she says, um, each day recite the prayers of the rosary. With the rosary, pray for the Pope, the bishops, and the priests. The work of the devil will infiltrate even into the church in such a way that one will see cardinals opposing cardinals and bishops against other bishops. The priests who venerate me will be scorned and opposed by their confreres. The church and altars will be vandalized. The church will be full of those who accept compromises, and the demon will press many priests and consecrated souls to leave the service of the Lord. So this is a message that's approved from Our Lady, uh, 1973, October 13th. And it's just interesting that you know we're coming up, you know, on an on an anniversary of this uh, during during the time you know where all this is going on. So definitely can't help but notice those signs that that are out there so i want to talk about the synod and just sort of what the expectations are going in um i want to apologize to our listeners last week our uh podcast we had some technical issues and that was one of the things that we were hoping to do is to preview the synod so we're just going to kind of tackle it now uh if you're not aware the synod starts on october 5th um do you remember, Elliot, when it ends? I mean, it's like two weeks, right? So I think it goes till the 19th. I thought it might have been the 17th, but uh, the Internet knows best. Yes, and you can hear me typing hear through my microphone through the magic clicking. of sound. But uh, we don't – but, I mean, even even if the Senate ends, we're not expecting anything from the Senate no. this year. I mean, this is just – planning sessions and discussing what we want to talk about uh and then next year will be is that how i understand it well it's the first of two rounds i guess you could say yes and um i know the vatican Vatican moves at at approximately the speed of smell well yeah and scott just so you know we're continuing to have a little bit of a problem with your audio so we'll we'll let you know when that happens, because it's a little bit hard to hear you. You were you were fine in the pre-show, but I don't know what's going on now. Um, so I'm just trying to look up the dates because you know there's rosary novenas going on for this right now. I know it starts the fifth, but why are these dates so stinking hard to find? Yeah, fifth to the nineteenth. Okay. <clears throat> so that's when it's happening. So it's literally going to be two weeks, um, mm-hmm. and uh, it's going to be happening at the Vatican. Um, and there's a lot of things that are going to be going on, but you know, the thing that's really risen to the attention of everyone is this question of, you know, is there some way, some pastoral way, some way through the auspices of mercy to provide what the Orthodox provide uh, to their people um, through, you know, this principle of oikonomia, which is basically their way of saying we bend the rules when necessary. Um, you know, to, to allow the divorced and remarried after a period of penance indeterminate to receive communion again uh, while continuing to live in 
what is essentially, as Christ would have defined it, an adulterous marriage. Um, that's that's sort of on the table, and then you can begin nuancing that down to, well, it's really more about annulments and whether people can decide for themselves whether their marriages were null, et cetera, et cetera. So it gets very complex at that point. But, I mean, that's, that's the issue that's got everybody's attention going into this. Uh, is that fair to say? Is there other stuff that we should be looking at? Yeah, the uh, the other thing that they were theoretically going to talk about is uh, the implementation of humane vitae, uh, the use of the, uh, the rampant use of artificial contraception, mm-hmm. um, the application of uh, NFP uh, as, as illicit means you know, to, to space children, that sort of thing. Just because, quite honestly, how many how many Catholics really abide by? what Humana Vitae said, what Cassie Kanubi said. Sounds uh, like it's less than 10% if some of the surveys that I've seen coming back in anticipation oh, of the yeah. are correct. I mean, that, you know, all of those surveys, what there, there were so many of them that were released in advance as if they were press releases. Right. Why, you know, why are, why are we releasing data about what the, the faithful want? Isn't that for the Senate itself to review? No, no, we're going to put it out in a press release. That's strange. Yeah. Which is problematic, I mean, even methodologically, um, because basically everybody knows if you follow polls, you know, as the results start coming in, that actually influences voting patterns. Because once people, generally people are conformists, I mean, conformity is good, in-group type thinking. If one uh, candidate is strongly in the lead after only a few days, that just as who influence the thinking, the voting patterns of a larger group. So by sort of um, broadcasting what most Catholics apparently believe or reject, you're creating this impression that, well, I guess that might, may be, that's the census fidelium, you know, that's the yeah. sense of the faithful. So, <laughs> hey, I want to think with the mind of the church. I want to be a good Catholic, just like most other Catholics are. And that's very problematic, you know. And, and, and there's one thing I'd like to address, actually, that I find it, it's a constant red herring. Um, when, when this issue is raised, you'll find people kind of, in a confused way, sort of defending Casper, even though at other times you'd think, well, he was the sort of nemesis of Ratzinger and Benedict XVI, and he's a classic liberal, and clearly the church has always stood against his proposal. But then they say, well, you know what? He says marriage is indissoluble. There's no way we can change the, the, the divine teaching that comes right from Christ. Well, I guess, you know, he's pretty solid. So maybe we're, we're misunderstanding him. The issue is not the indissolubility of marriage. The issue that's being, that's being the struggle here, the contest that's being waged is not about the nature of matrimony as a sacrament. That's a huge red herring. What's actually going to be pushed for, I believe, and, and what Casper's really going for, is shifting the center of gravity about authority from the external forum to the internal forum of keep it within basically the couple, the autonomy of their conscience, the dignity of the human persons, the uh, sort of the, the dignity of the confessional, and that there shouldn't be so much of this external bureaucratic uh, quote-unquote, pharisaical, um, top-down bureaucracy. But this is like, so I mean, this is... Ma- the- it's not about matrimony. It's about who has the authority to decree that 
or decide that a marriage was null in the first place. This is the dark. That's what going for. It's the dark side of subsidiarity, basically. I mean, there are some decisions that shouldn't necessarily be delegated to the lowest possible level of authority. And Mm -hmm. there's a reason for that is because there's a certain caution and care that needs to be taken, you know, holy things to the holy, as the Byzantines say during their liturgy. Um, There's this idea of of keeping that sacred. And, and, you know, (laughs) if you step back and you look at, I mean, this is very, very parallel to what happened before the release of Humanae Vitae when the Pontifical Commission on Birth Control came out and actually endorsed artificial contraception. And there was a period of at least a year, I think it may have been closer to two, before Humanae Vitae actually came out. But during that time, all these guys who were very, these bishops who were pro-contraception, they were out there having press releases and you know press conferences and all this stuff. And the world got the impression that the church was going to change its mind about artificial contraception. And then Humanae Vitae comes out and it's, Sort of this, you know, the shot heard around the world, except that's all it was. It was like he was shooting blanks because nothing got enforced. Everybody already had the impression that the church was going to change her position on this. And now that's, I mean, the de facto state of the church is that the vast majority, and I do mean the vast majority of of Catholics, are using artificial contraception. I mean, we had in March of this year, a bunch of these surveys that came out in advance of the Synod on Marriage and Family uh, being reported on. And like you said, kind of like press releases, Scott. And, you know, So I have a sampling of them. In America, we have, I'm quoting, in an unusually blunt report to the Vatican, Bishop Robert Lynch of St. Petersburg, Florida, said that even most regular church-going Catholics in his diocese find the church's teaching on artificial contraception no longer relevant. So there's one from America. From Germany and Switzerland. The German dioceses reported that premarital unions are not only a relevant pastoral reality, so we're talking cohabitation before marriage, are a relevant pastoral reality, but one which is almost universal, since between 90 and 100% of couples who seek a Catholic wedding are already living together despite church teaching that sex outside of marriage is sinful. From Ireland, many expressed, many survey participants, expressed particular difficulties with the teachings on extramarital sex and cohabitation by unmarried couples, divorce and remarriage, family planning, assisted human reproduction, and homosexuality. The church's teaching in these sensitive areas is often not experienced as realistic, compassionate, or life-enhancing. Europe overall, Belgian Catholics expect the church to welcome everyone, regardless of differences or mistakes made. This is especially true when it comes to gay people and remarried divorcees. Belgian Catholics, inspired by Pope Francis, are calling for a mother church that embraces all, hence the need to grow in the faith and form lively communities. So these are quotes. Luxembourg, same thing. Doctrine on marriage, responsible fatherhood, family, rejected in non-ecclesial circles because the church is seen as a stranger and not competent. Um, The Swiss... Swiss Catholics fully agree on the importance of sacramental marriage and the Christian education of children, but they say it's difficult to accept the church's doctrine on family, marriage, and homosexuality, and approximately 60% majority is in favor of the church recognizing and blessing gay couples. So you have all this stuff coming in, and then you have a guy, multiple guys probably, who are saying we need to delegate this decision to the people who are answering these surveys in this way. I, I'm sorry. I don't think that there's ignorance at work there. Mm. There's too much data suggesting that if you give the decision to people, people have already said what they're going to choose. 
Am I wrong? Well, you're saying that if you show people the state of the church as it, you know, quote unquote, the lived reality, that's going to help them make a, a more informed decision or, or what I'm saying is the people in the pews were surveyed by their dioceses right mm-hmm. around the world. Mm-hmm. And so one is, I think, reasonably <laughs> one can reasonably assume that those who responded to these surveys are those who are showing up for mass on Sunday, because otherwise, how are they even getting the survey? Right. Um, so we're talking about church-going Catholics, which has always been a distinction that we make in terms of understanding the faithfulness of anybody who self-identifies as Catholic. Well, at least they're going to Mass. They're not Christmas and Easter people. And yet the vast majority of those are saying they disagree with the church's teaching on cohabitation, on contraception, on homosexual unions, on all this stuff. So then we go into the Synod and we have this movement, like you said, to delegate the authority on how to decide these sexual issues to the people themselves, right? Or to the people with their pastors, et cetera, et cetera. But we right. already know what they're going to decide because this data has been coming in for seven months or more right. already. Right. So right. it's it's a clear handoff. You know, we can talk about, oh, we want them to be able to decide for themselves. But we already know. We already know what they're going to say. So that means the agenda of those wanting to hand it to them is to basically make those compromises a reality. That's my read on it. Yeah, if, and I if, think go ahead, Scott. If we wanted to be, you know, totally optimistic, um, you know, about about the synod, you know, yeah, let's let's trust that, you know, the church has the power to bind and to lose, you know, the the church that can, uh, that can, if if she chooses to approach these issues differently, you know. Maybe this, maybe what comes out of the synod will be benign. You know, let, let me give you an example. You know, for instance, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, NFP should be one of the things that they discuss in this thing. This shouldn't just be a divorce festival. So NFP is is kind of an issue near near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, I practice NFP with my wife. Is it my favorite thing in the world? No, probably not. Um, but uh, you know, I do it. The church tells me to do it. Uh, you know, I try to practice it as best as, that I can, but it's a it's a huge cross to bear. Um, you know, the you know, do I do what the world says and just embrace uh, you know artificial contraception whenever? Um, uh, I know it, it's it's a very tricky situation. Uh, there's a there's a blogger named uh, Kala Alexander, and she had a really nice post uh, uh, earlier this summer on. Uh, on you know yes you know my husband and I do use NFP uh, and she's got a great quote in there she says I'm tired of living up to the church's teaching when the world and the church herself seem allied in the attempts to punish me for it <laughs> so you know she so in that she talks a lot about you know yeah the world doesn't want me to have more kids the world doesn't want me to uh, you know you know keep feeding these these kids. You know, they're they're a drain on the economy. They're uh, uh, they're you know using up too many natural resources, as well. The church you know, is trying to is trying to you know in a roundabout way, you know punish her for you know trying trying to live up to NFP, because what is the church doing to try to help us bear this burden of our fertility? You know the, what is what is the church doing to help us, you know have lots and lots of kids? 
or, or space them really, you know, a lot closer together and enjoy that, that marital, marital gift that we give to one another uh, in, in the act of sex. But I just don't, I just don't see it. So I, I wish that the outcome of this, uh, the, the synod would be, you know, something, you know, practical steps to help us bear this cross, not to take the cross away, not, not to make it lighter, but to help us bear it. You know, things, things, you know, like making sure that in our parishes that we're talking about NFP, I, I haven't heard it at all in years. Um, you know, I've heard, I've heard, you know, maybe a couple sermons on homosexuality or the value of marriage, but no one talks about, uh, about, you know, either continence or, or uh, NFP or, or contraception or I, I hear vague denouncements. I don't hear anything specifically uh, from priests or from laity in the dioceses about how to do NFP. It's kind of just these little islands of, oh, well, hey, I'm a, I'm a Marquette, uh, I'm a Marquette teacher online, uh, or hey, you know, this one parish across town, they do have a, an NFP group that meets. It's very spotty. So I, I would love to see, you know, practical stuff about, you know, training priests, training religious to help uh, help the laity understand that kind of stuff. Do I think it's going to happen? You know, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't see something coming out of next, next October saying, oh, okay, here's a rigid, you know, uh, uh, here's a rigid training methodology that can help 99% of cases, you know, help triangulate your fertility really, really well. Uh, and, you know, by the way, the church is going to help, uh, the church is going to help with, with kids in a, in a lot bigger way. So you don't have to feel like, uh, you know, having an, having another kid two years after your last one is such a big commitment. You know, I'm curious. I mean, there's a couple of things there. So NFP is a big landmine issue, right? I mean, it seems uh-huh. like it's exceptionally polarized. There, there are people who think it's the eighth sacrament. And if you do it, it makes your marriage better and everything's fantastic. And you know, rainbows will shoot out of your house. And, uh-huh. and that's not true because NFP is a, is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that you make because you believe you have sufficient reason to do it. And those reasons are deeply personal. I mean, the church has a very difficult time. You're not going to get a list of reasons how you can practice NFP because it's very specific to every marriage. Um, on the flip side of that, you have the providentialists. I mean, I feel like I've been having this debate. Well, I have. I've been having this debate for 15 oh, years. Sure. Oh, wow, yeah. For 15 years. I remember sitting in college uh, in the cafeteria talking with a bunch of people about providentialism versus, hey, God gave us you know, a design for sexuality and an intellect and will. And you know, the goal is not to have as many children as you can possibly have until your wife's uterus falls out, which, I mean, I know people who – we're pretty much in that situation where they wound up having, unfortunately, sadly, a bunch of miscarriages at the end and then, you know, a hysterectomy because they had so many kids so close together. The toll that it took was too much physically. Um, so there needs to be, you know, a reasonable middle. So there's there's that issue with NFP of how do you present it without it just becoming this big monster of a, of a polarizing controversial issue. And there's reasonable arguments being made on both sides. There seems to be very little middle ground where people are saying, Hey, <laughs> if you're doing NFP, chances are you probably think there's a pretty good reason because otherwise it really sucks. So why are we doing it? Um, 
you know, give people a little bit of, of, of credit. Yes, I'm sure there are people who are abusing it, but I, I, I haven't met them. Well, actually, no, I did. I met I met them in college, the people who were you know, ready to go study theology of the body in grad school for five years, and they wanted to get married but not have kids for five years so they could go to grad school. To me, yeah, that's a little of- excessive. Um, and that's where you, kind of the whole sexual theology thing kind of goes off the rails a little bit for me. But, I mean, I don't even want to step into this right now because already I, I can only imagine how many people I'm making angry just talking about this. But oh, so yeah. that's, that's the one thing. But the second point I wanted to draw out from you, and I, I really wanted your perspective on this. So you talk about the church making it easier for people who have kids. Now, uh, I've got six, so there's nothing easy about it. You've got three, but you've got at least one that has some health issues that create special needs and concerns. What do, what are you looking for in terms of the church helping with that? Um, I've, uh, I've had some, you know, in, in the past we've looked for, you know, Hey, can we, we would just like friends like within the parish to, I don't know, help out, come over, see us, uh, help with, even if, even if I'm paying them, even if it's a, even if it's, you know, a 14 year old girl, that's a a friend in the parish, you know, she's making some money, you know, my wife's getting some help in the house or if it's, you know, uh, a 75 year old grandma that, that, uh, you know, all of her kids are in another state, that, that kind of networking would be great. I yeah. just don't see it in the parish life of you know, really, really helping others bear their burdens. Um, is it something that you think has to come? I mean, who should be the originator of these ideas? Should it be the parish priest? I, 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 I don't I know. To, That's kind of what I'm wondering. I've talked to a bunch of parish priests on this kind of stuff, and they're mostly of the opinion that this is, this is on the lady. Like, I can't. You know, I can't do this, and I agree with that fully. Um, we're, we're losing your microphone again, but I think what you were saying, and I don't know if there's something you can do to clear it up, but what, what Scott was saying is that parish priests can't do it. They're overloaded. Uh, yeah. It's on the laity, and, and I know that, I mean, a lot of parish priests are feeling really frustrated because not only do they not have any help, many of them are manning large parishes by themselves because of the vocational crisis that we're in, but then they're stuck with all this administrative stuff where – they basically need an MBA to run a parish rather than, you know, mm-hmm. a degree in theology so that they can help the people. Um, it sounds like you're clearing up, so I'm going to hand it back to you. No, I, I, I totally agree with that. The, uh, the parish priests are not the ones to, you know, socially network within the parish. It, it has to come from somewhere else. But can that be initiated by the diocese? Can it be initiated by... Uh, the local bishops' conferences of, you know, hey, these are the mechanisms where we're going to help give you a curriculum, where we're going to help give you networking tools um, so that so that people can start to get to know one another outside of the context of just we go to Mass or, you know, some of us go to Knights of Columbus, some of us go to Council of Catholic Women, and you know, we have our own little clique. Some of, some of us uh, are, are part of the Catholic schooling system. Um but you know, how do we get to know each other on a deeper level and care for one another? Not just uh, not just you know care about each other. You know, when we say hi at mass uh, during during the, the uh, what used to be the kiss of peace. Mm-hmm. But you know, do we uh, do we really know each other, and are we bringing that love into our communities? It's something that goes beyond donuts and coffee. If you're lucky enough to even have that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the the other thing I the other thing I wanted to you know if. 
if it was my synod. Um, it, the, the thing that connects NFP and marriage and everything is, is marriage preparation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been, there's been some critique uh, in the media about, uh, oh, well, I, you know, I don't, uh, who was it that, that, uh, that said, you know, well, most of the marriages aren't valid anyway, so they can be annulled. Cardinal Casper said that the Pope told him, Pope Francis told him that he believed that at least half of Catholic marriages were invalid. So it's, it's hearsay through a guy hearsay. who, okay. who isn't particularly reliable to start with. Okay. So, so. You know, let's let's presume that the Pope is right about that. that and honestly, that I have my Catholic, suspicions about that. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's presume that Catholics aren't being formed in marriage, and that pre-cana programs are really shallow, mm-hmm. and that you know we're doing it just to check the box off. Right. You know, and and say that you know we went through it and we sat through the the discussion where the old people told us how to check our. Uh, mucus levels and that sort of thing, uh, you know, and we looked at each other all gross-like. Right. That's not preparation at all. No. You're not. You're not getting anything. You're just. You're, you're there to check off a box. And uh, because so, most of the people are already living together, and I mean, let's be honest. You know, I've talked about this before. I think on the podcast, I talk about it elsewhere. You know, when I did my marriage prep and we had our weekend thing that we had to go do, and it was like a two-day thing. Um, there must have been 50, 70 couples. I mean, it was a big facility with a lot of people in it. And when they asked the question of who wasn't already sleeping together, there were like three of us that raised our hands. Um, you know, so this is happening. So we're, we're introducing people into the sacrament. They're already living in a state of objective grave sin. They're not getting access to the grace of the sacrament unless they're confessing that and actually repentant. So they're being admitted to this sacrament of the living, but they're dead to the life of sanctifying grace. I mean, it's a it's a travesty, but I mean, it really makes you wonder, especially when you look at the statistics on what happens when people live together before marriage. Are those people entering into a valid marriage? You know, there's a lot. I mean, you can go through the canonical impediments. And by the way, something that's come up recently, and I just I'm going to throw this out there and it's kind of a throwaway, but something I've heard people say that would apply to those who are already cohabitating is the idea of notorious concubinage. Uh, is being one of the one of the uh, canonical impediments to marriage. Notorious concubinage is not exactly what it sounds like. Notorious concubinage is not, hey, these people are living together, uh, you know, and they're not married. It actually has to do with. It's really weird, but it's if you have a mistress. Let's so Elliot. Let's say you have a mistress, right? Awesome. Yeah. Uh-huh. Way to go, Elliot. So you there. you have a mistress, and you are then not allowed to marry her direct line relations, uh, her daughter, her granddaughter, her sister, her mother. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because of the appearance of incest. It's really strange, but I mean, it's one of the longstanding canonical impediments. So I've had, go ahead. What if if she's hot? Well, I mean, mercy, the concept of mercy uh, should be applied, should be applied. Non-judgmentalism. So, okay, so actually this gives me an opportunity to transition. So I want to talk to you, Elliot, um, about – so you wrote a piece uh, for us this week. Um, we, we entitled it Let's Call the Whole Thing Off, uh, mm-hmm. The Danger of Weakening Catholic Marriage. Could have been a stronger title, but, I mean, it, it more or less covers the idea of, you know, when we begin reconsidering the sacrament of marriage the way that it appears we are, 
it, it threatens to endanger the sacrament tremendously. And I've heard, honestly, from people who have family members who are saying, hey, I'm living in a regular situation. Maybe this applies to me. Maybe I get out of this. Maybe this isn't such a big deal. Maybe it's worth coming back to church because I can, you know, I can be with somebody new or I'm already married to somebody whose marriage wasn't annulled. So now maybe I can come back. I mean, it's having an effect already. This isn't hypothetical. So then you talked not only about that and about what it does to the people who are suffering through difficult marriages, which is not a few, mm-hmm. but also you looked back to a document that I don't know how many people knew about from 1998. It's from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith when Cardinal Ratzinger was in charge. It was called Concerning Some Objections to the Church's Teaching on the Reception of Holy Communion by Divorced and Remarried Members of the Faithful. I mean, it literally anticipates this exact issue and many of the issues that are being discussed in the Synod and deals with them, from my perspective, authoritatively. So can you talk a little bit about that? Okay, sure. Um, let me start by saying, without you know rambling too much, I'm going to try to give three examples of how the church. In the piece I wrote, I, I said this document reveals how cyclical the path of truth can sometimes feel. And yes, truth marches forward. Saint Augustine showed how the gospel totally challenged the old pagan thinking of the cyclical universe and um, reincarnation and all that sort of thing, fate and all that, where there's there's a telos, a purpose to history, that it goes from A to Z. There's It's a narrative structure. There's a goal. <clears throat> However, in history, there are, you know, I always liken it to if there's a trail ascending up a mountain, you know, and at every loop, it does get a little bit higher. It gets closer to the top, and yet you will rotate you will come around the bend and see the same kind of scenery but at from a slightly higher angle so the point is there are these zombie errors these zombie heresies these zombie um kind of uh, confusions that are just they're they're persistent i mean jesus said the poor you will always have with you and so that's something we always grapple with but at a higher and higher level of understanding so there's three basic parallels i think which show us that if a Catholic is just sort of waking up each day and rebooting his sense of the faith, saying, hey, what's happening now in the news? Um, okay, sounds good, because it's happening now. Then that's not very Catholic, because Catholics have an eye towards hope, towards where Christ is calling us in our sanctification, but also an eye towards the past of where we've come. And I'm saying that's, you know, that's what tradition is, is mm-hmm. that it, it gives us that tension which keeps us standing up, okay? You know, the two legs. Um, so anyway, I, I kind of, I try to be whimsical about some of these things, otherwise I'd go even more bonkers. <laughs> so um, back in the day, St. Jerome has this famous line that, during the Arian crisis, as he was recounting it, the, the whole world groaned or awoke with a groan to find itself Arian. Right. And, you know, that ties into that famous expression, Athanasius contra, contra mundum, mundum. You know, yeah. Athanasius against the world. And the way I say it now is that the world awoke, or the, rather the church awoke with a, a groan to find itself hipster. I mean, you look at these, <laughs> these, these um, survey results... Your average Catholic, I mean, more than average, is an effect, effectively a pagan, really. You know, and Pope Benedict XVI talked about that, sort of a, a functional atheism. 
this is something we have to realize it happens it it can be a reality for the vast majority of the church look at the Aryan crisis right. so we need to take off the rose-colored glasses and say well that's just modern european catholicism and this is just filipino catholicism this is just mexican or north american no it happened it has happened before that a vast number a vast portion of the church goes astray and we we don't need to sugarcoat that we need to say there's there's profound confusion and correction must happen from well the top you know because you mentioned the the word subsidiarity earlier right and the thing that people get confused they think subsidiarity just means smaller is better wrong the way that Pius the ninth talked about it was that subsidiar- subsidiarity means that authority should be passed down to the smallest possible unit of, of action, but no smaller. Meaning, you can't, it's not always just make it smaller and smaller and local and local. No, there's some things that just must be handled from the top down. And, and Steve, you alluded to that. This is where we are. And it was the same thing, with, as you mentioned, with Paul VI, um, back with Humana Vitae, that, praise God, he did come through, but really I think he just, he, he, he abandoned his duty, he, he, gave, he had a false idea of subsidiarity prior to issuing Humana Vitae. Mm-hmm. And I, I personally, I think that Pope Francis is kind of following in the same uh, path, is that he's, he, he wants all this, this uh, dialogue and discussion and, and sort of, you know, energy happening in the church. But we just need to face the fact, look, the results are in. Most Catholics reject. They, they simply, mentally and, exist- and behaviorally reject plain church teaching. That needs to be addressed. It doesn't need to be coddled. It doesn't need to be accommodated. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So at the same time, I don't th- and the point is I don't think a synod is, is the proper tool for dealing with that. It's too subsidiary. Right, it's not right. the proper level of authority. So anyway, we've, the church has dealt with this in the Aryan crisis, and, and at some point God is going to send in the proper deliverance. I mean, it's, it's his church. But, you know, Bishop Athanasius, Athanasius uh, Schneider, an interesting name. Yeah. I believe he's in Ukraine. Is that right? He's based out of Kazakhstan. Oh, Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. See, I'm an American. I don't know what geography is. But the point is, <laughs> he said that we're in the fourth great crisis of the church. He did. And I, I really think that's true. So that's one parallel, is let's not let everything go down the memory hole. Let's realize that there can be profound crises in the church. We need to stop thinking everything is awesome, so to speak. Um, yeah, the second point is, is yes, the, docu- the CDF document was issued in 1998. I'm going to let that sink in. 16 years ago. That was a long time ago, right? No. That's... That's nanoseconds in the in the church's way of thinking. You know, there's this expression: the church thinks in centuries. Yeah. Well, it, it, apparently not anymore. I mean, everything seems to be the age of Twitter. You know, um, does it does it play well? How is it trending? And that's the problem. We, we've we've a lot of times. I think a lot of bishops have uh, succumbed to the idea of how is this how is this trending? To it's my selfie opinion. Catholicism, basically. Right. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Let's hope it doesn't ever come to that literally, but. Um, you know what? What I found when I was writing that piece for One Peter Five, I was I was really blown away that literally all the arguments or objections to the church's cold, harsh, you know, Pharisaical stand about marriage—they were in that document. 
so all this current debate, this contemporary debate, is old. It's stale. Yeah, we've been over this. Right. Okay. And yet that has gone down the memory hole. And and honestly, if you start citing things like that, people say, "Oh, well, you're being too reactionary. That's too traditionalist, or whatever the word it might be." No, 16 years is not irrelevant. Okay. And um, I, I, I mean, people can go to one Peter five and read them. But but all all the arguments are there. They were they were they were anticipated because they've been the same arguments for almost two thousand years. Mm-hmm. Because the fact is, <clears throat> Jesus gave some hard teachings. One of them about the Eucharist. One of them about marriage, where he actually negated a longstanding, quote unquote, pastoral, merciful accommodation in Mosaic law, which had been that that men were able to write. Uh, sort of a, a decree of divorce for their wife for almost any reason. I mean, some of the, I think I've heard some rabbis said that even if, if she messes up on dinner, I don't know if that's true, but it's Jesus the burnt said, toast law, right? Exactly. <laughs> the you know, deuterocanonical burnt toast law. <laughs> yeah. The book of, uh, you know, uh, frustrations. No, but, um, <laughs> that, that Christ, when he taught on marriage, he actually made things even more stringent. So any effort to go back towards a sort of mosaic, Compromise because you know Christ. He said, "Any of that compromise on divorce was a concession to the hardness of heart, the coldness of man's heart." Before Christ came to fulfill the law, and that's what he did in his teaching. So any effort to turn the clock back really um, is is uh, totally out of place and doomed, of course. So anyway, I encourage people to find that document and just realize: sixteen years ago, th- this was this was definitively, clearly handled and, and addressed by the church. So it's really hard to know what has changed in 16 years. Okay? And, and the threat, I mean, the, you, I think, if you will permit me to quote you, you oh. handled, <laughs> no, but I mean, I think you handled the stakes very beautifully. Uh, there's one particular paragraph that really stood out, um, and I'd just like to read it. So you said, Liberalism has generally entailed the democratization of what in the past were royal privileges. Henry VIII's earth shake, uh, sorry, church-shaking gambit has now become a norm in the church. While the debate is not really new, it is not going away. The October Synod is looming. Doubt fills the air. The secular media are champing at the, at the bit with the audacity of hope and change. No one is immune from this environment. Can we imagine that good-hearted Catholic husbands and wives are not being tossed about by the resurgent idea that perhaps, God only knows, perhaps an annulment would be more merciful for the children, for each other, for the in-laws, than persevering through the highs and lows of that indissoluble old thing called holy matrimony. Perhaps now is a new era, an age of reappraisal and relief. The demons whisper while the media hold the mic. Perhaps now the church has finally learned to reward us for our weakness instead of calling us to such an outdated cross. The storm is raging at a thousand dinner tables and in a million hearts, and yet does our Lord not speak from the very midst of the storm, calming our hearts and quelling the waves that would inundate the bark through its profoundly open windows on the world. But I, I really think that line, that the storm is raging at a thousand dinner tables and in a million hearts, this is the is the upshot of of a 
the better part of a year of discussion about this synod on marriage and family and all the things it's going to reconsider and all the things it's going to make easier, the easy outs that it that it might promise to people for marriage. And you can have Cardinal Burke say as many times as he wants that the church isn't going to change its teaching on this. People have heard something that they want to hear and they have just locked onto it like a rabid dog and and they don't know how to let it go. And then if it doesn't happen, they're just going to be disaffected and angry. I, I don't right. It's the frustrating. Which is, is is going to be just as bad as as the concession, the radical concession. You know, GK Chesterton, I always joke that he said everything because if you if you find some quotation just say he said it and you can he never find did, the citation. Yeah. He did. But um I believe he actually did say that the devil always exploits ambiguity. And, you know, to get back to the Arian crisis, what was decided at the Council of Nicaea was the difference between homoousios and homoiousios. And this was always mocked, you know, that one, literally, the difference of one eye yeah. was, was an anathema, you know, was basically binding dogma. But that's true. You know, and one of my, my great role models... Uh, and he really, in, in many ways, brought me into the church. His father, Stanley Yaki, he was a Hungarian-born priest, and he got trained as a, a, a Benedictine, and he came to America, and then he got his Ph.D. in physics. Anyway, um, Father Yaki came to America, and he became a historian of science. And he has this book called The Keys of the Kingdom, and he it's basically a conceit. It's a whole metaphor of why did Christ choose the image of keys? Because historically, keys are a sign of authority, yes, but because what do they do? Because a key is precisely crafted to open and close something. And one little divot or bump difference, it will not open. So those little tiny details matter. Precision matters, you know. It's interesting, by the way, that you mentioned this. I don't know if you saw it, Mm -hmm. but uh, Roberto de Mattei, has mm-hmm. a piece today in Il Foglio, but it's it's reprinted in Raraticelli, where he specifically discusses this distinction between homoousios and homoousios. Really? And he literally says, this is not a question of nitpicking. In the seemingly minimal difference between these two words, there lies an abyss. On the one hand, identity with God. On the other, a certain analogy or resemblance which makes of Jesus Christ an ordinary man. One letter changes everything. Yep. You know, it's like, with, and to get back a little bit to NFP, it's like we've all been there with one of those home pregnancy tests. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that, that blue line or that plus sign, you know, you know, physically it's not a difference of many atoms, but it's the entire world. It's literally the difference between life and non-life, okay? And all I'm saying is that... Um, by fomenting all this ambiguity, this hyper subsidiary, yeah. do I do of, I get to decide? You know that that pregnancy test is right or wrong. You know, do right, I? Get, yeah, that's not up to us. Some things are, are beyond us, and and why that's so hard to just simply re- so reaffirm. The world tells me the world tells me that I can decide. It's my own choice. The church yeah. says quite the opposite. Right, and and as our church, as our pastors continue to give the impression that, yeah, things are kind of, surveys are important, you know, focus groups are important, uh, a vibrant, open, and unsettled discussion, all these things are important, 
that even if nothing changes dogmatically on the book, so to speak, it is a tidal wave of ambiguity which the devil is exploiting and will exploit. And and that's why I do liken it to the old Aryan crisis. It's the democratization of settled truth. Right. You focus group stuff to death, and then it doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, you mentioned the Aryan crisis, but, I mean, even in our spiritual warfare series that we've been running from Father Heilman, he talks about this. He says it's stealth Arianism. That's the problem. It's people who profess belief in Jesus Christ, but actually don't believe that he's God. And they just, they're, they're hiding it. At least the old Arians came right out and said, yeah, we don't, we don't think, you know, we think he's created. We don't think he's really God. Right. These guys say, oh, yeah, yeah. They, they, they claim to give their assent to everything. They pretend to be Catholics, but then they're, the reality of what they believe and how they practice is anything but. Yeah, if I could... Um... I think a, a very fundamental point that gets lost in, in, in any sort of debate is that, how do I put this, that um, the divinity of Christ is not an abstract theological sort of plaything. Christ is the Lord. He's the risen Lord over all the earth. And the you know traditional way of speaking about that is that he's Christ the King. Mm-hmm. And that he doesn't just reign in our hearts back when I was a Protestant, it was all about, you know, the sinner's prayer, Christ is, I confess Christ is my personal Lord and Savior and everybody else, whatever. No, that he has established a kingdom, and that has complete social ramifications. And so I think that um, a lot of times people think that as soon as you mention the kingship of Christ, you're some kind of um, hardcore traditionalist who just wants to you know excommunicate the entire world but it's quite the opposite you want to sanctify the entire world okay the problem with with a sort of liberal sort of lockean individualistic thinking about the faith is that it lets everyone sort of be in their own little world you know hey i'm not gonna impose anything on you because pluralism is good you know polyhedron is good (laughs) to use just a random image but um the fact is the, the, all these doctrinal things about the homoousios, you know, the, the total divinity of Christ as the incarnate God immediately has social consequences. And so when a satanic mass has a, you know, a black mass, when they intentionally desecrate Catholic symbols and realities, you know, they are doing their best to strike at those realities themselves. And so, you know, John Paul II talked about the culture of death. And, you know, in our last roundtable, we talked about, you know, incarnational Catholicism, how it it takes hold of and it embeds itself in all aspects of life. Well, really, I, I don't, I'm not saying he got it wrong by calling it culture of death. I'm saying that what the culture of death is, it's an anti-incarnational culture because think about when a, a Satanist or whoever might be uh, desecrates a, a crucifix or mm-hmm. a shrine or something – they are trying to reach through that thing to the reality to strike at God himself. So when we think of when a person chooses to abort or contracept the, the end, the goal, the fruition of, of the sex act, what they're doing in a way symbolically is they're saying that the bearing of a child, it would be better if it resulted in death. You know, And I'm saying that if... What if, again, what if Our Lady had deliberated on, eh, 
okay. I, right. I said, you know, thy will be done, but it's been three months. I've had morning sickness. I need to go see somebody about this. You know, the point is the culture of death is symbolically totally opposed to the incarnation. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's a social issue. And the church really speaks to that, that, that all this pro-life stuff, it's not just about, um, you know, Catholics breeding a bunch of children. It's sending a message again and again. Every child is a sign that the incarnation was our, that a, the bearing of a child was the salvation of the world. And every time a Catholic parent bears another child, they're sort of, you know, iconically, um, how do I say, embracing the incarnation. And every time a different couple aborts or contracepts a new life, they're symbolically, iconically rejecting the incarnation. Okay, so it gets pretty deep, you know. Yeah. Um, so anyway, about that, you know, one my last um, example of the memory hole, or, or how, or to put it another way, how the zombie ideas just keep coming back if we if we don't keep our guard up, you know, which is the whole point of one Peter five is is you know keep up your guard because the enemy is never asleep. Right. Is only twenty years ago, liberation theology was considered dead. And there's an essay on, um, where is it? I think it's on catholicculture.org, okay, uh, by Edward Lynch. It was 1994. I'm not going to read all the excerpts, but basically the title was The Retreat of Liberation Theology. And he, he charts the course of how liberation theology was kind of formally, uh, um, the whole movement was really kicked into motion in 1968 in Medellin. Um and he says that the fundamental problem with liberation theology is that it shifts the center of importance from the heavenly things to the earthly things, okay? And he says that the way that people like Pope John Paul II and Cardinal Ratzinger at the time defeated it was by sort of embracing some key points in liberation theology, but then calling their bluff and saying, actually, the things you are working for only work on the church's traditional understanding of salvation. Mm. Okay. Um, however, as I was reading the article, here, here's something that um, Edward Lynch, Lynch says this. He says, starting with John Paul II, Orthodox Catholics spoke more assertively of their own heritage of devotion to the poor. And I, I, I said, no, no, no. It didn't start with John Paul II. It goes back decades, centuries. You know, the church has a vast very rich social teach social heritage right okay and um and so it's kind of ironic that even him as a defender of orthodoxy he was he was succumbing to that memory hole and so um one one that memory hole got really big right around like 1960 ish well sure because everything was re how do i say everything was up for debate there was a sort of reboot feeling you know new springtime Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I think it was easy for people to focus on. Th- there was this obsession with hope instead of with how do I say with with faith in some ways because faith is a is a is a is a dogged attachment to a past covenant, a past promise. Whereas hope, you know, is kind of the energy that keeps us going towards its fulfillment. And and those those things, faith, hope, and love, can never. They can never be pitted against themselves. But I think for many decades, the church has been kind of imbalanced in the way of hope. Um, anyway. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, this is a tangent. But, I mean, you just kind of 
imaged for me. So as somebody, I attend the traditional Latin mass and you know, the, the, the mysterium fidei, the mystery of faith in the, in the, in the ordinary form, there's a number of different ways that the mystery of faith, quote unquote, is proclaimed, but it's almost always future focused. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. But in the, in the old right, the, the mystery of faith was, you know, that, how, how is it stated? trying to remember off the top of my head. But it's basically that, that the sacrifice, you know, it comes at the end of the consecration of the precious blood, and it's that this will be made effective for you and for many for the remission of sins. Right. It's backward-looking. The mystery of faith is that Christ died to affect our salvation. It's not about that he'll come again. It's not right. about, you know, keep in mind that Jesus Christ has died for us and has risen from the dead and all these little things that we sing. Those are the hope things, and the hope things are great. I mean, we, we're, we're a church of the resurrection, but we're also a church of the cross. Mm-hmm. And, and to lose the cross completely invalidates the resurrection. Right, right. Um, and it's just, I don't know, it's interesting that, that you kind of bring that up, this sort of backward focus. Uh, I mean, yeah. this forward focus versus the backward focus. Uh, it was just something that struck me, and I, and I apologize because it's a tangent. But No. No, no. I mean, I I fully agree about, you know, um, I was talking to my dad actually just last night and uh, I was telling him how there seems to be this, um, a lot of people think, well, as long as I, you know, believe what's in the catechism and affirm and I can say the creed without mumbling, then, you know, I'm a good Catholic and uh, that's all there is to it. But, you know, really the liturgy, the way we worship God, the way we submit ourselves to, the way we, um, how do I say, um, inject ourselves into the reality of his saving uh, death at, at Calvary is through the liturgy, is through worship. So worship is is really the second, the other side of dogma. Mm-hmm. And to trivialize that is, you know, basically, how would I say, if you start, um, if you've got a nickel, and on one side of it you start pouring acid and corrosive materials and you start hammering it, you're going to impact, you're going to harm the other side of it eventually. It's going to deform the other face of the coin. Mm-hmm. So if you're willy-nilly, sort of apathetic, and sort of routine about worship, you're going to have you're going to have people, Catholics, who are willy-nilly and routine and clueless about dogma and teaching. And so, yeah, the point of the whole Eucharist is that Christ does come again that is his return to us in the eucharistic celebration that our hope is fulfilled in the reception in communion with him it's not some future shock type there's gonna be a christ in the sky thing i mean that i don't know how that's going to work out ultimately that's a great mystery but the point is christ fulfills his promise he comes to us every time we meet him in the eucharist um right and so yeah the backward look i mean people always say you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Uh, you know, always be looking back. Have to be looking forward. But that's just unreal because human memory is how we, based on our memories, we process our experience. Okay, so. But this is relevant of, yeah. to what you're talking about with liberation theology because this. I mean, liberation theology is at its heart Marxist, really, mm-hmm. and it's this idea of, you know, we create a utopia here on Earth, and the only reason we would try to create a utopia on earth is because we don't believe in heaven right well 
not only we don't believe in heaven, but basically we don't believe in a heaven that could be given, that could be established as a true act of God. That the thing with liberation theology is that the way we change and shape and reform society is the way heaven manifests itself. Now, there's some truth in that, in a way, but by making social reform sort of a uh, sine qua non, you know, sort of like an absolute condition for the reality of, of the kingdom come, that, that that's just absurd. Um, and so again, you know, Marx was all, he was sort of, he, a lot of people consider him to be a kind of Jewish prophet, really, because mm-hmm. he was, actually, he was raised Jewish, and he was very steeped in all the Old Testament prophets, but he was always looking forward. Everything, he, he believes in a kind of social original sin, and that finally the Marxist state would rescue it would it really would be this this social paradise um and again he had no past to affirm so by strictly looking forward uh marxism has caused a great deal of suffering you know and um so what i'm i'm saying is that um all these examples the Aryan crisis the the issue of how you know this issue of catholics living as remarried and then even liberation theology it's been addressed the church is not silent the church is not asleep christ is not leaving us to be tossed about right. in the storm right. and anyway i i just think that there's this very profound confusion or this misconception that being strong and you know hard identity i think father uh Zulzdor, father z he calls it hard identity catholicism that if you're serious about the catechism and doctrine well you're going to kind of be real stingy and scroogey and 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 um you're gonna you're gonna be weak on social doctrine but that's not at all true because what i'm saying is that the incarnation of christ has immediate social implications because he's the king of the world right you know and uh something i want to sort of bring up about how again the cyclical path of truth that sure we thought back in by 1994 that liberation theology was gone. But even decades before that, there had been a similar phenomenon of a kind of proto-liberation theology, and it was happening in France, and it was called the Sidon movement. Okay? And um, let me see here. Let me sound smart by reading a description. <laughs> Where is it? Uh, it's uh, one of my this, favorite moves. Right. Well, you know, it works. You know, the But you've got the languages down. I My accents are... I will now impress... The masses with my French pronunciation. Um, it says here, this is according to uh, Tradition, Family, and Property, which is a very fine website. Le Sillon was founded in 1894 by a group of Catholic students on the initiative of Marc Sonnier, who became their leader. The movement quickly, oh, by the way, this was, again, 1894. The movement quickly spread throughout France and particularly among the youth, enjoying the support of countless bishops. Large numbers of seminarians and young priests joined its ranks. Sounds pretty awesome. However, it did not take long before strange aspects and dangerous doctrines began to surface in the movement, such as an egalitarian tendency to place priests and laity on the same footing during study workshops. Likewise, a kind of democratic mysticism became increasingly prominent, presenting democracy as the only legitimate form of government compatible with Catholic doctrine. So that's the context. Now, in 1910, Pope Pius X wrote a letter to bishops in France addressing this whole Sinon movement. 
And, you know, pardon your readers. If they need a nap, they can listen to me drone. But I, I do want to read some from this. And the document was called Le Notre, uh, sorry, Notre Charge Apostolique, which is our apostolic charge. So Pius X is saying, I'm the Pope. This is what I have to do as a fellow bishop with you. With you. This is what we bishops have to do with this issue. Okay? Okay. So, if I may. Uh, again, remember, this is 1910. So nothing new is under the sun. Pope Pius X begins, The truth is that the Sionist leaders are self-confessed and irrepressible idealists. They claim to regenerate the working class by first elevating the conscience of man. They have a social doctrine, and they have religious and philosophical principles for the reconstruction of society upon new foundations. They have a particular conception of human dignity, freedom, justice, and brotherhood. And in an attempt to justify their social dreams, they put forward the gospel, but interpreted in their own way. And what is even more serious, they call to witness Christ, but in a diminished and distorted Christ. Alarming and saddening at the same time are the audacity and frivolity of men who call themselves Catholics and dream of reshaping society under radically democratic conditions and of reestablishing, excuse me, establishing on earth over and beyond the pale of the Catholic Church quote-unquote, the reign of love and justice, with workers coming from everywhere, of all religions, and of no religion, with or without beliefs, so long as they forego what might divide them, their religious and philosophical convictions, and so long as they share what unites them. When we consider the forces, knowledge, and supernatural virtues which are necessary to establish the Christian city, and the sufferings of millions of martyrs, and the light given by the fathers and doctors of the church, and the self-sacrifice of all the heroes of charity, and a powerful hierarchy ordained in heaven, and the streams of divine grace, when we consider all this, it is frightening to behold new apostles eagerly attempting to do better by a common interchange of vague idealism and civic virtues. What are they going to produce? What is to come of this collaboration? A mere verbal and chimerical construction in which we shall see glowing in a jumble and in seductive confusion the words liberty, justice, fraternity, love, equality, and human exaltation, all resting upon an ill-understood human dignity. It will be a tumultuous and futile agitation, or as in my own words, let's call it a big mess. So I want to pause there. I mean, there's a lot more I think that should be shared. What are you guys' thoughts on that? I mean, you have it once the French Revolution and the modern ecumenical movement. That's what I hear in that. Right. Strange bedfellows. Yeah. Especially since the French Revolution toppled the last Catholic monarchy. Right. The the thing that I'm hearing in all of this is that, you know, you're just, you're just, you know, Elliot, you're such a stodgy traditionalist and you're obsessed with, <laughs> you know, preaching, preaching about sin and how everyone's going to hell. And, you know, you're just not merciful in your approach. It, that's, and that's totally not what Elliot's presented this entire time. You know, I, I really appreciate that approach of you know, making sure our philosophy is in the right place first and that we do remember where we've come from and that we've been through these struggles before. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, the short memory syndrome is a really a, it's a big problem. And I, I encourage anybody who's listening, I mean, chances are if you've made it this far, you're already on the same page with us. But if, if you're not, go to Papal Encyclicals Online. Start reading through the stuff 
that happened before 1960 because there's a lot of treasure out there. I mean, you've talked about the social kingship of Christ. Read Quas Primus by Pope Pius XI, uh, promulgated in 1925, where he established the Feast of Christ the King. Christ's kingship is is real. It's social. It's not just this this spiritual metaphysical kingdom. You know, my kingdom is in heaven. It's it's here on earth as well. And I don't know why, but we never hear this stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Al Gore has his inconvenient truth, and the church has always had her inconvenient truths. You know, yeah. ours happen to be, you know, actually infallible. But um, I, I just, my point is again, yeah, like Scott, you said, this is not, this is not about beating people over the head with doctrine because that's a false dichotomy. Doctrine is speaking truth about Christ, and He is the source right. of mercy and compassion and salvation. And so if you're speaking right about him, you're going to the source of true compassion. And so, you know, if I may, I'm just, I want to keep coming back to that we are not orphaned to the prison of the present, you know, um, the tyranny of the immediate, okay? That if we would be willing to just look a little bit, even, I don't know, a hundred years back, we would find that really nothing's new. And the church has always had our back, so to speak. And, um, and again, the other point is that because Christ is God incarnate, his incarnation has, has brought the whole world, every, all, the whole scope of human existence and, and life and family life under his, his reign. And it's a reign of love. That's what people don't have to understand. And that, you know, I do wish, I do pray that the Synod would, would uh, you know, frankly, miraculously emphasize these themes. I, I don't think... It will, because I think it's going to be too much of sort of an open forum, sort of, you know, open source Catholicism type thing. But anyway, we're not abandoned. If I could just read a little bit more from this 1910 document, I think it really speaks to where we are these days. Um, that sure. that being strong on doctrine, being quote-unquote a traditionalist, is not any basis for being callous or cold-hearted about social concerns and... Um, mercy and 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 all the things that the, the whole scope of Christ's teaching okay so let, let me continue if i may jumping ahead um as soon this is what pope pius x says after he talks about some of the other um problems with this Sidon movement as soon as the social question is being approached it is the fashion in some quarters to first put aside the divinity of jesus christ and in brackets i have and thus to put aside his divine kingship so continuing quoting and then to mention only his unlimited clemency, his compassion for all human miseries, and his pressing exhortations to, love, to the love of our neighbor and to the brotherhood of men. True, Jesus has loved us with an immense, infinite love, and he came on earth to suffer and die so that, gathered around him in justice and love, motivated by the same sentiments of mutual charity, all men might live in peace and happiness. But... For the realization of this temporal and eternal happiness, he has laid down with supreme authority the condition that we must belong to his flock, that we must accept his doctrine, that we must practice virtue, and that we must accept the teaching and guidance of Peter and his successors. Further, whilst Jesus was kind to sinners and to those who went astray, he did not respect their false ideas, however sincere they might have appeared. He loved them all. But he instructed them in order to convert them and save them. Whilst he called to himself in order to comfort them, those who toiled and suffered, it was not to preach to them the jealousy of a chimerical equality 
whilst he lifted up the lowly, it was not to instill in them the sentiment of a dignity independent from and rebellious against the duty of obedience. Whilst his heart overflowed with gentleness for the souls of goodwill, he could also arm himself with holy indignation against the profaners of the house of God, against the wretched men who scandalized the little ones, against the authorities who crushed the people with the weight of heavy burdens without putting a hand out putting out a hand to lift them. Christ was as strong as he was gentle. And I'm jumping down a little bit. He says, it would be wrong to apply Christ's teachings only to one's personal life in order to win eternal salvation. His teachings are eminently social teachings, and they show in our Lord Jesus Christ something quite different from an inconsistent and impotent humanitarianism. So he tells his fellow bishops in France, it is your function, your duty to form the conscience of the people and of the public authorities. Lastly, this is the real, this is for me, this is like sort of the, 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 you know, the big bell, the jackpot. However, let not these priests who are drawn to social action he's talking about, okay, let not these socially active priests be misled in the maze of current opinions, and I, I add, current opinions, 1910. Let them not be distracted by the miracles of a false democracy. Let them not borrow from the rhetoric of the worst enemies of the church and of the people, the high-flown phrases, full of promises, which are as high-sounding as unattainable. Let them be convinced that the social question and social science did not arise only yesterday, and that the church and the state, at all times and in happy concert, have raised up fruitful organizations to this end of social welfare, okay, social health under Christ. And finally, that the church, which has never betrayed the happiness of the people by consenting to dubious alliances, does not have to free herself from the past, that all that is needed is to take up again with the help of the true workers for a social restoration, a restoration, the organisms which the revolution shattered, and to adapt them in the same Christian spirit that inspired them to the new environment arising in our world. Finally, last line, indeed, the true friends of the people are neither revolutionaries nor innovators. They are traditionalists. So I, I read that, and that was only a small portion. I mean, it's, it's only about 10 pages long, but you would think he was speaking today. False democracy, the, borrowing the rhetoric of our foes, you know, jettisoning doctrine in order to support social mercy, whatever. Anyway, sorry to ramble on, but um, can't let the memory hole get the better of us. The church has always been our sure guide. So let's dig in. I, I mean, I don't have anything to add. Scott? Well, oh, that was beautiful. Thank you. And I really think it is beautiful because I, I the point I tried to make in, in the piece I wrote is that too many Catholics feel abandoned. And, you know, Scott, this goes back to your point. Catholics trying to live by the church's own teaching feel abandoned by the church's own pastors. And uh, that's got to change. And I don't it, think it that can happen. To, yeah. in, I don't right. think it can happen in a synod. It can't happen in a parish council. You know, Pope Pius X wrote that letter to to strengthen his brethren, not to promote a dialogue, not to promote an you know a roundtable sort of debate, to strengthen his brethren, his fellow bishops, and to protect the sheep. It's got to come from somewhere. So let's pray that you know the synod 
um, is not too overly synodal. Synodal, you know, it's not too uh, <laughs> right, right. G- given to a false democracy. Okay, yeah. yeah so, I mean, there's there a is. there's a rosary novena going on right now. Fifty four day it just started two days ago. Maybe you can jump in. I mean, I'm I'm terrible about novenas because I always end up missing a day, and then then I'm like, do I have to start this over? <laughs> just pray it four times. Yeah. Just do it. I mean, you know, pray it. Pray the rosary every day for this because seriously. It's a big deal. And I know, I mean, a synod is, <clears throat> excuse me, in the grand scheme of things, a synod is a local meeting of bishops. It shouldn't be as big of a deal as it looks like this is going to be, but it is. I mean, it's a big deal because everybody's watching. The eyes of the world are on this. Yep. Um, and whatever it is that they come out with, if it's insufficiently specific, mm-hmm. that will be taken as permission. The devil exploits ambiguity. Yes. And and we've already got you know reports coming out ahead of time saying yeah we're not gonna we're not gonna put anything together that's super specific we're gonna do a post synodal exhortation of some sort that's gonna be just you know whatever and it, the loopholes are big enough to drive a freaking train through <laughs> and that's the problem is that you know those people who are faithful to the church and to her teachings and who understand them they're probably gonna be okay they might be a little scandalized but they're gonna be all right. Right. Because they know what they're supposed to do. But it's the vast majority of those who are improperly catechized and don't really know what the church teaches and who are getting most of their information from the media or from pastors who have an agenda. They're the ones who are going to be in trouble. And it comes down. <laughs> people don't seem to understand, you know, that the, that the idea of law has very much to do with a love of souls. God mm. has, God is a, I mean, he's process-oriented in a sense. You can't have mercy mercy without justice. So justice is predicated on truth, but truth is manifested through law. You have to have law. And Wait, re- if, repeat that, would you? I said justice is predicated – I mean, mercy is predicated upon justice. I mean, it, it, they go hand in hand. Uh-huh. You can't be merciful unless there's a concept of justice. Uh-huh. Justice is what sh- you should receive for your things mm-hmm. that you've done. Mercy is me saying – guess what? I'm going to let you off the hook, right? So mercy and justice are inextricably intertwined, but, but justice is predicated upon truth and truth is manifested through law. We have to understand truth manifested through law. These are the precepts of the church. These are the things you have to do. Here are the doctrines and the dogmas and the things that you have to follow because they are revealed as aspects of God's truth. Mm -hmm. And then, we follow those things through the law and we adhere to the law. The law is not the enemy of mercy. The law is the reason why mercy makes sense. You know, it's, it's, I mean, we're, we're all dads. What happens when your kid messes up? You know, you can be a, a, a real hardliner and say, I'm going to ground you because you made this mistake or whatever. Or, I mean, this happened to me tonight. My son wouldn't eat his dinner. He wouldn't want his vegetables and he threw a huge fit. And I sent him up to his room and the fit went on and on and on and on. Now, the, the 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 modern concept of mercy would have been, you know, oh, just, you know, he doesn't have to do what you said. Just let him out. Whatever. It's no big deal. Just, you know, he's sad. And clearly we need to make him feel not sad. But what I did instead was I let him sort of work out his frustration and his anxiety. And then I went back to him and I said, here's the deal. I'm going to give you a shot at mercy because I believe in it. The mercy is you have two choices. You can come back. You can eat the dinner that I gave you. You can eat what was served to you and not throw a fit and do your chores. And then you don't have to go to bed right now. Or you can just 
go brush your teeth and climb under the covers. Those are your options. And that's really where the church needs to be. Mercy is saying, hey, you messed up. We forgive you. God's grace is here. Come back. Be in full communion with the church. Or justice demands, you're not going to do these things? Then sorry, you're not part of the church. You're outside of it. And we welcome you back anytime. But you have to do it on our terms, not yours. Because that's what salvation demands. I mean, otherwise, we make a mockery of Christ's passion, right? Why did he have to come to save us if it doesn't matter what we do? Right, that opposing, pitting mercy against justice, truth against grace, that's a complete error. In, in the Gospel of John, it says that Christ was, was made flesh among us, he was incarnate among us, he brought grace and truth, and those have to be in balance. And, you know, as long ago as in the 1930s, 1940s, again, the memory hold. How do we forget all this so easily? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran pastor who actually was involved in an attempt to assassinate Hitler. I'm not trying to violate Godwin's law or anything, but he had this idea of cheap grace. And he said that the problem at that time in the Lutheran church was they, they were so strong on grace, you know, and faith alone, that it had... It had um, kind of eroded into this cheap grace that, yeah, I'm forgiven. It's okay. You know, God understands. He said, no. A grace which does not include or even feel like the cross is not truly divine, not Christian grace, you know. And um, I, I just, I always want to try to keep it practical, and I think there's something really beautiful in the Code of Canon Law. The very last clause. People think of Canon Law as, again, what the media is doing is pitting canon law, somebody like Burke, uh, you know, canon 915, pitting them as the bad guys, the Pharisees, against the good guys who are willing to kind of meet everybody where they are and sort of talk things out and sort of let some things slide. But the very last clause in the Code of Canon Law, the, the latest you know, 1983 edition or whatever, says this, the salvation of souls which must always be the supreme law in the church, is to be kept before one's eyes. So in every decision to reform or streamline or fiddle with canon law, the question must be asked, is it promoting the salvation of souls or not? And I think that's what we need to pray for about the synod. There's no more important question. Yep. All of our activity, I mean, whether it's our personal pursuit of salvation or whether... It's the salvation of those souls entrusted to our care. Mm-hmm. That That's the bottom line. Yeah. The salvation so, of souls, which must always be the supreme law in the church, is to be kept before one's eyes. So that goes right back to what you were saying, that law is not opposed to love. In fact, it's, it's law is the incarnation of love. <laughs> Just ask any kid who has no boundaries. Right. The ones right. who have parents who actually lay down rules and say, sorry, this is what you got to do. They're the yep. ones who actually feel loved. Mm. We've all been through this. So, all right. Well, I think it's been a good discussion, and you know, there's obviously a lot more to talk about. Um, Synod kicks off on the 4th, which is going to be this coming Saturday. Uh, I'm sorry, the 5th, the 5th, which is this coming Sunday. So there's going to be a lot of news coming out, um, and we're going to keep our eye on it and try to present to you what we think is the most relevant. Um, so we'll see how it goes, but please pray for the outcome. You know, pray for God's will, whatever it is. 
So thanks, everybody. You have been listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. This has been a production of Signo Media, copyright 2014, all rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at www.1peter5.com. That's www.1peter5, all spelled out, all one word, dot com. You can join our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1peter5 and follow us on Twitter again at twitter.com forward slash 1peter5. If you feel that we have provided you with something of value, please, please hit our donate page and make a contribution. It not only helps pay for our web hosting and the fine content we provide, but helps us keep food on the table, and that's kind of important. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks for listening.